Thank you, Arctic Acoustic. I love the music. Welcome back to Hanging with History. This is Season 1, That Miracle That Happened, That One Time. Episode 11, Magna Carta, The Grand Delusion. This episode is going to be a lot like Episode 3 in that it will depend heavily on one source and have less of my own contribution. Today, this is Paul Johnson's History of Britain, and I'm going in this direction because my study of the miracle in recent days has been heavily into dollars and cents, capital costs, labor costs, R&D, and so on, of economic development. And that's important, and we will cover it later. Right now, I'm more and more seeing how the edges of the purely economic, mathematical explanation are only weakly explanatory. Don't get me wrong. The economic explanations are in the details powerful and impressive. I hope you'll be impressed also when I present them. But there are holes in those explanations, weak points that depend on the human factors, the social monkey hobbit factors that we are covering in these episodes. Magna Carta. You've heard of it. Yeah, I've heard of it. The king and some nobles signed a document. Blah, blah, blah. I can barely stay awake. Oh, hi, Valkyrie. Everybody, this is Valkyrie. She's one of my Norwegian cousins, one of the best hearts and keenest minds anywhere. I suggest a strong and reading of your podcast. Always. Though it's always dangerous to privilege things that someone didn't say over what someone says. Still, sometimes a Straussian reading leads to the biggest insights. Magna Carta is most interesting as a failure that succeeded wildly. If you're my age, it was probably taught to you as an English thing that prefigured ideas like no taxation without representation and natural rights, though natural rights really depend more on the three A's, Aristotle, Augustine, and Aquinas. Magna Carta was a document that led to documents like the Declaration of Independence, the U.S. Constitution, Paine's Rights of Man, and Age of Reason. But what is it really? Last week, we talked about modus tenende parliamentum, a lie, a dream, a fantasy that became real. Some of you probably found that story deeply weird and troubling, but not too troubling because you only ever heard of it last week and then forgot about it until reminded now. Others, though religious, may have wondered if it was a miracle. Others may have had a passing thought that this was just one more way the aliens have influenced human history. The irreligious may have had no trouble with it, since religion is just lies and fantasies that become real. The anti-ideological maybe feel the same way, since ideologies tend to be full of lies and fantasies that capture the mind and spirit until they're manifestly demonstrated to be false, often with pyramids of skulls. And now we're going to look at Magna Carta, which has something like modus tenende parliamentum story. How does this story begin? With war. Britain and France at war. Well, we don't really have Britain and France yet, the way we understand them today. We have cross claims on kingship, cross claims on land ownership that kind of correspond to England and France, close enough. So let's just go with that. It will make this easier. King John of England was at war with Francis Philip II, also known as Philip Augustus. We know these characters better from the play and movie The Lion in Winter than from history, typically. But this was their most important stage. And as king, John was spending a lot of money. He financed German, Flemish, Dutch, and Burgundian military efforts against France. And he 
sucked personally as a war leader. At least that's what the taxpayers in England thought. It was costing England a lot of money, and France was winning. And the barons revolted. There was civil war with many barons, and baron here is just a term meaning major landowners, uh, revolting against King John. This civil war saw the son of Philip Augustus, the future Louis VIII, invading England and being proclaimed King of England. Did you know about that? No, I thought uh, the English family was this great defense, and no one ever conquered England again after William the Beautiful at Hastings. Pretty common misconception. Oh, and thanks for saying William the Beautiful. I appreciate that. Many kings of England came over by sea at some point. Most of them are in the I don't care category for the purposes of the podcast. But we will look closely at William III, Dutch William, the glorious revolution guy who came over the channel along with a Dutch-Danish army and conquered England, albeit at the invitation of London and the great magnates. Well, Louis of France was never crowned in England, but obviously this was a serious, precarious situation for John. Enter the secretive and powerful international conspiracy. And that could have been in scare quotes. But this was a period when popes like Innocent III were pushing the idea that kings and secular rulers only justly got their powers from the pope. Remember apostolic succession. That papal supremacy was an idea that applied to everything, not just church doctrine as we think of it today. A number of church intellectuals from all over Europe agree with this ideology and work to see it realized. Ipso facto, this is an international conspiracy. King John's reign didn't just have the French to deal with in civil war, but he had campaigns in Ireland, Wales, and Scotland, which he financed by seizing and selling church lands. A popular move for King John. Huh, you could get popularity when you needed it by seizing and selling church lands. That's something future kings would remember. For many reasons, there was a powerful anti-clerical feeling in England, uh, primarily but not exclusively in southeast England. Popularity at home with the people, yes, but not with the church. King John was excommunicated and England was put under interdict, which means that the Pope declared that church services performed were invalid. Your marriage, your child's baptism, your parents' last rites, no good. This led to more money problems, and John needed the support of the bishops. What with the civil war and foreign invasion going on? So he did something desperate. He gave England to Pope Innocent III. What? I never heard a king gave England to the Pope. Oh, he got it back with an oath of fealty to the Pope. John acknowledged the Pope as his feudal lord. The king was the Pope's vassal. In fact, the Pope lifted the excommunication, the interdiction, and dropped all the charges against John. The bishops came back to John's side. And this might sound like slick politicking, but many people did not like this one bit. England is a fief of the Pope, and many of the younger, better-educated barons were done with John. They didn't think highly of apostolic succession, remember Joseph of Arimathea, if political power were more deeply devolved into the population as during the 17th century, I don't think John would have survived. They would have taken his head. But civil wars suck, and everyone wanted it to end. 
John met the barons to negotiate in November 1214. The negotiations go on and on, and there's a truce that lasts until April 1215. Both parties are appealing to the Pope all the while. The Pope is on John's side. Of course, John just gave the Pope a kingdom. Outside the higher levels of the Church, this papal supremacy ideology was not easily grasped. The illogic of it would lead down many roads, not least to Avignon. Avignon? I remember the Pope's swear there for a while. As in France, are you suggesting Pope's move from Rome to Avignon because of King John and Magna Carta? No, it was because of their international religious conspiracy to gain power over kings. Eventually, the King of France would show the Pope that sometimes the sword is mightier than the pen. Stupidity smart people commit again. But the Avignon papacy, the multi-pope episodes, all work to weaken respect for the papacy. Wycliffe is coming. Back in England, John and the barons negotiate some more and draft a document at Runnymede, and it is signed in June 1215. This is sometimes as far as teaching about Magna Carta goes. Runnymede is the place. The date is June 1215. The real story is what happens after. In July, they meet to negotiate the actual execution of Magna Carta. What are the next steps? And that goes badly. Everyone is really angry. The document is intolerable. It doesn't mean that. The barons defy the king. The pope excommunicates the barons. August sees more civil war. Okay, you got that? Magna Carta signed in June. It totally fails to be implemented in July. And civil war is back in August. Total failure. But then, Pope Innocent III dies. And then John dies. And everyone wants peace. Yay, peace. So Magna Carta is reissued in 1216. It takes its final form in 1225. What's it say? What's it mean? Who knows? We'll figure it out later. It was reissued by kings as a concession whenever they needed more money. It was issued 32 times in all. Should have added 10 more. It became the first document of the statute books and a national institution. Not, not because of the civil war it caused, but because of the constitutional peace everyone could pretend it established. And because everyone was pretending and monkeys will be monkeys, it did establish constitutional peace of a kind. What about the content of Magna Carta? What does it actually say? A bunch of weird stuff. The document is not reflective of any coherent vision. It's a hodgepodge, deliberately, of different people's interests. You have items the Pope wanted in there, the royal administration in there, uh, the barons loyal to the king, the hostile barons. The northern barons particularly did not want to be forced to go to war on the continent, and all the other barons did not want to have to pay for wars without their consent. A few things are just strange, like a demand for royal councils, but John, like all kings since the conquest, had been holding them already. And the barons had their traditional rights in force, so there's a lot of stuff in there that everyone was already doing. One new idea was that there would be a watchdog group of barons overseeing the king, a radical innovation. But in practice, no one could agree on what it meant, how it would work in day-to-day -day practice. A hundred years later, the Modus Tenende Parliamentum would be written to describe what they were doing, and 50 years after that, they would start doing it. 
all the while pretending it had been that way all along. It's sort of like a Doctor Who episode. But back in 1225, no one knew or agreed what Magna Carta meant. But that didn't matter. The saying about Magna Carta is, few read it, everyone quoted it. Few read it, everyone quoted it. Everyone could use it against everyone else, and they did. Archbishops used it against the kings. Kings flourished it against popes. Parliament against kings. Crown against parliament. Unlettered peasants against their masters. Masters against townsmen. Townsmen against rural lords. The point is not the specifics. The point is more meta. I got rights, man. If everyone believes I got rights, and everyone sees everyone else believing it, then, as social monkeys, everyone believes it, and as a consequence, everyone has rights. Now, we just have to figure out the details. I mean, Magna Carta was just a convenient symbol for something that was already there. From where, though? Ancient rights of Saxon conquerors? Civil rights from the Dane law? Noble rights and obligations? It has to be some combination. But everyone had rights, and everyone else knew that everyone had rights, and knows that everyone knows it, and voila, a society of laws and not men. Common law would work through the details over time. It sounds glib, too glib to be true, and yet already, in 1215, jury trials were being used instead of trial by combat. The superstitious element was being driven out, gradually, of the law. That's worth repeating. The superstitious element was being driven out of the law. The reliance on precedent in all legal cases, including property, began to make secure enjoyment of property more possible. Right? This is great. It allows long-term thinking, and you're not just trying to squeeze as much short-term profit out of your land as possible. But can enormous strides towards peace and an orderly society one where long-term plans make sense because there's a reasonable expectation of justice, can that happen through a mass social delusion? Of course it can. There is no other way. There is no other way. It's one of the facts about hobbits that makes it more of an explanation than a miracle. You've just made an assertion about reality yourself. Firmly grounded in European history. The approach kind of copies Scott Alexander's Slate Star Codex, It Was You Who Made My Brown Eyes Blue, essay. It's from 2015. Anyway, Parliament achieved its substantial power without the need for a major conflict or crisis, unlike everywhere else. We talked about that last week. Everyone knew about rights. They conflicted. But we have courts to work out disagreements and enforce agreements that we make. If we all agree to follow the courts, then the stakes are lower. It's no longer life and death, and we don't need a civil war over this stuff. Not again. Not for 400 years. People are people, and they will still fight for power. Oh, the status of a king and the power to tax is heady stuff, more compelling than any drug. The War of the Roses, as one example, is still in the future. But these conflicts don't matter. They don't matter because they're just about which particular royal bottom will sit on the throne, fulfilling a broadly agreed-upon crown role in the civil consensus. Until, 400 years after Magna Carta, a particular royal ass named Charles I takes the ideology of the divine right of kings too seriously and tries to drive yet another flawed ideology past its logical boundaries. Next week, we'll talk about the Knights Templar, the Black Death, and its consequences for our story. And thank you, Valkyrie. 
I appreciate you coming on the program. Okay, we'll figure it out. <laughs> well, we're outside on a really nice day. And Cami, you've just had the opportunity to listen to episode 11. What'd yes, I have. I had kind of forgotten about the significance of Magna Carta. I, I don't know why. It kind of slipped my mind. The rights that it granted people. For the first time, everyone felt they had rights. And I had never thought about how superstition became driven out of law. When there were trials, they were settled by, by combat. Right. Or by ordeal. I thought you were going to pick I'm, up on the interdiction. Something I found particularly interesting and I didn't know about before was how Pope Innocent III basically nullified all of the religious actions prior. The marriages, the, the last rites, the baptisms, all of that. that. That was kind of interesting, thinking of families and how alarming that must have been. Yeah, I wonder how people felt about it at the time. Popes used the interdict as a weapon pretty frequently against secular lords that they were in conflict with. I kind of think they did it so often, must have been ignored, because the what they would do when they lifted the interdict is retroactively make all the, the ceremonies and rites uh, valid again. Oh, we're taking this all away. Oh, nope. Yeah. Psych, we're giving it back. <laughs> Kind of like kids playing a, a game they've made up rules on. It was kind of like that, yeah. Psych. <laughs> I like that. I like that analogy. Tag, you're it. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of hard to believe that everyone kept taking it all so seriously. I don't have a hard time picturing that, just watching how seriously people take things here and now. Ugh. I mean, everyone's screaming about how they're in favor of science, but they seem to actually ignore how little science there is or what real science we have. Pick a topic, pick a side. Pick a side. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, yeah let's not it, do that here. No, I, I don't mean to. I'm just pointing out that's part of human nature, I think. It is. That's how the monkeys behave. Thanks for coming on the program. You're welcome. Thanks for sharing so much information with us. Please click subscribe or follow on your podcast app. If you like the podcast, please tell a friend about it. If you don't, please tell an enemy. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to discuss anything covered in the episode, please feel free to email me at hangingwithhistorypodcast at gmail.com. Mm-hmm.